Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. I'm Jonathan Pryke. On the 18th and 19th of June, the University of Papua New Guinea, in partnership with the Development Policy Centre, hosted the 2015 PNG update. You can find more on the update at our website, devpolicy.anu.edu.au. In this podcast, you will find a keynote address from the former World Bank Vice President, Jim Adams, on lessons from, for reform from Africa and Asia. Thank you very much. I want to begin by thanking the PNG government, the University of Papua New Guinea, and the Development Policy Center for the opportunity both to revisit PNG and to participate in this important conference. Having a regular country-driven discussion of key development issues is clearly a best practice and needs to be supported as a key input into policymaking. I think the renewal of this process is a very important set of events, and I hope it will be sustained. I'm particularly impressed, as others have been, with the increase in the number of submitted works this year and obviously the greater interest and attention to this. It's an excellent trend, and I think the major inputs are going to provide important inputs into decision-making. I very much want to endorse the point that our colleague made this morning in the prayer about if good analysis is translated into good policy, it would make an enormous difference in Papua New Guinea. In deciding on what to focus on today, I, I felt a bit of a role reversal as an order. After spending 37 years at the World Bank giving advice to governments and ministries, I felt it might be interesting to focus on the major themes I think I would give priority to if I were made a senior technocrat in a low middle income developing country. Drawing on experience in both Africa and East Asia, I propose to review three issues I feel would deserve most of my attention. Moreover, in respect to the third area, capacity and institution development, I'd discuss what I feel are the failures of the present aid system and develop some suggestions on what I feel needs to be done to address constraints in this key area. Not surprisingly, my first priority would be on economic reform and the need to continuously review key economic challenges. I'm firmly of the view that all countries need to consistently and constantly assess the impact of globalist shifts and be prepared to assess their impact on key development and key policy issues. Indeed, I'd argue strongly that this is no longer a challenge for developing countries alone. Looking at the recent European performance, countries that have undertaken needed structural reforms over the past decade have performed far better than those who have resisted reform. The story of Germany's successful labor market reforms is well known, but I always remind people that Sweden is a case where the government undertook far-reaching financial and budgetary reforms to address stagnant economic performance, and it has been clearly rewarded with a positive impact on economic policy and lower inflation. Sweden still remains an economy with a large public sector, but they insisted that the sector increase it sufficiently and they worked hard to improve the environment for the, public, for the private sector in Sweden. After the global financial crisis, Ireland took aggressive reforms to address the collapse of its banking system. Its economy is growing at 3.5% today. This is in sharp contrast with the reluctant reforms in Greece that we hear so much about and the resulting weak economic performance. Turning to developing countries generally, and PNG specifically, I'm worried that the recent resource boom that has benefited many developing countries related to Chinese demand has created a level of confidence in ongoing policies 
perhaps not justified. While increased resource revenues are always appreciated, the importance of sensible structural policies to long-term growth is key. As the minister himself outlined, the resources from LNG alone are not going to solve all of PNG's problems. Indeed, while increased uh, resources can have an impact, having worked on Indonesia and Nigeria during my bank career, I was always struck by the differences in policies they adopted after the early 1970s boom in oil prices. In Nigeria, fiscal discipline was set aside. The exchange rate was allowed to strengthen, and domestic industry was protected. In Indonesia, the importance of fiscal discipline was maintained. The exchange rate was carefully managed to sustain and support agricultural performance, and the trade regime was far more open. The pattern of growth that followed were completely different. Although Nigeria began with a per capita income that was double that of Indonesia in the mid-1970s, this income fell dramatically over the 80s and 90s, and today Nigeria's per capita income is half of Indonesia's. And it's not simply a matter of money and financial issues. In my view, nothing reflects the impact of di different policy choices better than what has happened to the oil palm industries in Nigeria and Indonesia since the 1970s. Nigeria was, in fact, the leading global oil palm producer in the 50s and 60s. That industry has declined dramatically, and today it is a marginal global producer. In Indonesia, macroeconomic agricultural exchange rate policies provided a stable and supportive environment for oil palm. Today, combined with Malaysia, Indonesia produces 85% of global oil palm output. The message to me is clear. Policy choices matter. Even to the resource rich, it is clear to me that ensuring policies are in place to manage the emerging situation of lower resource prices will be critical to long-term growth and poverty reduction. I think the minister gave us a nice presentation on some of the pressures he's facing, and I, I don't envy him for having to deal with them, but I think the importance of attention to these will be critical to the longer-term development of the PNG. My second area of focus would be on private sector development. My early years in the bank involved broad support for the standing role of the public sector in the socialist experiment in Tanzania. The failure of that effort to generate robust growth and subsequent global emphasis on downsizing government and facilitating private-led, private sector-led growth has clearly marked bank priorities in a lot of my work over my career. At the personal level, today I do recognize that there are real limits to the role of government and convinced that in the future government will not be the major source of employment and income generation in successful low-income countries. The most effective way to do that today is clearly through facilitating a dynamic and robust private sector. Having said this, I personally recognize that in most developing countries the private sector carries some baggage. In nearly all countries that lived through a colonial period, the private sector was closely associated with the colonial power. Indeed, in many instances, there were formal restrictions on the involvement of the local citizens in industry and commerce and finance. In Africa, the situation was often complicated when minority groups dominated local industries by virtue of their superior financial capacity and business skills. In my experience, I typically saw that the consequence of this history has been real doubts in developing country governments about the priority of providing an attractive business environment for the private sector. 
when confronted with donor efforts to support private investment over the last 20 years. I have often been amused by the disconnect between the public assurance of governments on their support for the role of the private sector, a view they know the donors want to hear, including the bank, and the very poor policy environments that exist in reality. Yet regardless of the reservations that remain, I now feel the need to underline the fact that a more effective private sector is increasingly critical to address the massive employment and income challenges facing developing countries. In fact, on reflection, I feel this is an area that I didn't spend enough time in my work both in PNG and more generally during my tenure as regional vice president. If I had to do that job again, it's an area which I would devote far more time and attention, reflecting what I now see as its importance. Given this view, there are two specific areas I would underline as needing more attention in government work on the private sector. The first is a tool which I think credibly assesses the real private sector policy environment at the country level, the annual doing business reports conducted by the World Bank Group. The recent 2015 report contains a comprehensive assessment of country-level performance across 11 areas that can have important impacts on private sector interest in performance. Among other issues, the report assesses the cost of starting a business, the ease of dealing with construction permits, the challenges of getting credit and finance, access to electricity, and a range of other issues. Reviewing Pacific performance overall and PNG performance specifically, it's not an encouraging read. The best performing country in the Pacific is Samoa, 67th out of the 199 countries assessed. PNG today ranks at 133rd. In addition, the relative performance of the region has deteriorated over time. In fact, last year, PNG ranked 113th, and so we've seen a deterioration. Now, part of that deterioration is not because PNG has done worse. It's that other countries have spent more time and done better. And so I think there's an important message about the need to continuously work on these issues. In sharp contrast to the Pacific performance, a number of African countries and most of the countries in Eastern Europe have made improved rankings on the index of focus of reform. Rwanda has moved up more than 100 places over the last decade, and Georgia now ranks just behind Germany in the 20th best performing group. I would add that these countries also perform well above regional averages in economic growth. Rwanda grew by 6% last year, and Georgia by 5% in 2014, in spite of the overall difficult environment in Europe. I would also note that an improved private sector environment is particularly important for the emergence of a robust domestic private sector, something countries do support. The simple fact is that larger and better endowed foreign actors can be discouraged by weak performance on the key areas of doing business, but they typically have the capacity to deal with slow and cumbersome processes and weak infrastructure. These exact constraints can be devastating to a new local entrepreneur attempting to make it in today's world. The second challenge is the need to more systematically develop a broader range of financing sources for private sector investments in the Pacific. In sharp contrast to Africa, I was also often surprised that the range of institutions involved in private sector finance in the Pacific is so limited. For Africa, nearly all European countries have established institutions that can provide private sector actors, provide funding for private sector actors interested 
in investing in the continent. Indeed, I just completed a review of the Finnish aid program, and even that small Nordic country has an agency called FinFund, which is devoted to supporting private sector actors in investing in developing countries. This diversity doesn't exist in the Pacific. Africa is also the home of booming growth of NGO-linked financial institutions. Again, this is an area that appears much more limited in the Pacific. I would underline that I do not think the public sector could fill this gap. Evidence suggests that in most low- and middle-income countries, publicly owned and operated finance companies and banks have not been terribly effective at supporting a dynamic and effective private sector and have often cost the governments involved significant levels of resources. To summarize, my second theme is to underline the critical importance of both improving the policy environment for private sector activity, particularly for local actors, and providing appropriate incentives for the rapid growth and increased diversity of private funding sources. My final and most detailed area of focus is on capacity and institution building. This is a long-term aspect of development work, but I think we can agree it has not been an area of broad success. After 50 years of development support across many countries, while there are examples of dramatic improvements in institutional performance, the broad problems of weak institutions in low-income countries, ministries and parastatals that are simply not effective users of development support, is a constant refrain of donors and project documents, and often an honest discussion of consistent concern of the governments involved. Specifically, across the work I have participated in the education and health sectors in three bank regions, Africa, Latin America, and East Asia, I found the pattern of weaknesses in those key ministries has been remarkably consistent. I would underline that these ministries are both substantial users of budget resources as well as donor support. Indeed, in many countries, the education budget is the largest single item in the budget. In addition, donor efforts at broader civil, civil service reform have not performed well. When I reviewed World Bank performance in supporting self-standing public sector reform programs, the results are not encouraging. Indeed, the low success rate of bank projects in this area has clearly discouraged further bank work on these types of operations. More broadly, I find it interesting and a bit sad that the challenge of capacity building seems to have disappeared in the reorganized World Bank. It appears nowhere in the 14 new global practices. I think this is a mistake. Further, the long-standing but more narrow investment of the bank and other donors in technical assistance is often an area of frustration and criticism for recipient and donors alike. Governments often feel that technical assistance is imposed on them by donors and that local capacity is not fully respected. They worry about the high costs of foreign advisors and resent the fact that the administration of TA is typically overseen by the donor rather than the recipient. At the same time, donors often find finalizing TA contracts difficult even when the needs are agreed and worry that the lack of technical capacity can undermine the substantial investment resources they are committed. In my view, this situation is particularly challenging given the key role institutions generally and technical capacity particularly play in ensuring sustained development impact. Indeed, when I was questioned in the bank as RVP in East Asia on what the key differences were between the successful economies in East Asia and the more challenging record in Africa, I increasingly focused on institutional capacity and the key role it plays in development performance. In particular, I would often note 
that while senior technocrats and senior parastatal managers in East Asia and Africa typically had similar qualifications and were able to manage their jobs, in East Asia these officials were much better supported by qualified staff in lower level positions in the bureaucracy, positions that were often left vacant or unfilled by, or, or filled by unqualified staff in Africa. Given this pattern of weak institutional performance, it would appear that a major rethink of how to approach capacity and in institution building would be timely and appropriate. I have to be honest, that hasn't happened. When I consider why, I don't have a definitive answer, but do have some tentative ideas. My basic view is that the real issue is that institutional development is simply risky and difficult. First, institutional take to change takes time, often substantial time. The typical five-year length of donor investment projects may make sense for infrastructure investments, but seems very short for institution development. Second, sustained efforts in institution development will have real costs for the governments involved. Ensuring more competitive salaries and funding for adequate training will require substantial long-term government support. Third, continuity of leadership and a clear strategy for institutional programs are necessary conditions for serious institution development, but don't often exist. Numerous donor behaviors, which I elaborate on a little later, do not help this cause. Finally, bad institutions seldom reform on their own. And what I see is the absence of outside pressure from recipient governments and the donors to pursue real change allows the momentum of failure to continue. What I propose to do is discuss a number of key aspects of the failure on institutional reform and make some specific suggestions on how recipient governments, the donor community, or both acting in concert can increase the probability of success. First, there's no question in my mind that serious institution building requires more time to evolve than is possible in the traditional five-year project. I would argue 10 years seems to be, should be set as a new standard for this area. This would ensure that the government involved has access to reliable long-term support. Second, I would suggest that governments be required to have a clear time-bound strategy for any agency being proposed for a new approach to serious institution building. It needs to own the strategy and ensure that the obligations are fully delivered. It needs to ensure that the parastales are given more effective and ministries are given more effective leadership and the leaders involved are fully supportive of doing things differently. Third, the approach should preclude the typical pattern of donor fragmentation. While multiple donors might be involved, there should be only one institution building program which all donors involved would commit to. The present practice of each donor having their own bilateral negotiations agreeing to their own programs has clearly not worked. There should be a clear commitment that no funds would be provided outside the agreed program. Moreover, any urgent technical assistance requirements should be fully incorporated into the program. My preference would be that one donor should be assigned to coordination functions. If donors aren't able to better discipline themselves, it's difficult to suggest real changes in government behavior. Fourth, this strategy would need to be fully funded up front by appropriate combinations of long-term government and donor funding. The lack of resources will doom any program no matter, well, no matter how well thought out. Fifth, one source of funding which I thought about are the scholarship funds available from various donors. 
My view is that these two should be consolidated in one program for the entity involved. Having one donor coordinate this would also make sense. I also feel that the traditional focus on technical scholarships should be made more flexible to ensure that potential institutional leaders as well as technical staff can receive appropriate scholarship support. Sixth, I would argue for selectivity at the country level. It makes no sense to try this new approach across too many ministries and parastatals. Reform should be focused on one or two key entities that play an important role in the government's development efforts. This would also make it easier to mobilize adequate support. Seventh, the institutions engaged in reform, in the institutions engaged in reform, all self-standing project units should be eliminated. If one is committed to the goal of better institutional performance and long-term institution development, using this long-term substitute for effective local capacity needs to be precluded. Eighth, poaching of staff by donors during implementation of the institutional reform program should be strictly forbidden. While I appreciate and have supported the greater use of local professionals by the bank and other donors, the continuity of key professional staff is central to progress and must be protected. Ninth, I think one can make a case for the greater use of creative twinning with effective institutions from outside the recipient. The combination of a longer-term program and more robust resourcing makes long-term twinning a much more sensible alternative. Twinning with successful developing country capacity seems particularly attractive as they will have more recent experience with the challenges of institutional reform. Some people would see this as an attack on the business side, the consultant side of development. That's not my intention. But I do feel that successful twinning requires building of stronger and more personal relationships between the organizations involved. I've been interested today hearing about the ANU and the University of Papua New Guinea efforts to begin to build a relationship. I think if one is successful in building that type of twinning relationship, it can have important and large impact. Finally, there would be need for a great regular system of regular views of progress and reform of the entity involves. I think managing the results, the actual results on the ground is important. This is an initial suggestion list. That's the first time I presented such an agenda. I look forward to comments, criticisms, and corrections. But given the vacuum that I see in the present debate today, I think new ideas and new concepts and new proposals are to be encouraged and supported from all sources. I would add in developing this list, there's one institutional program I have drawn heavily on, the IMF work with central banks in developing countries. While I recognize that central banks have some unique advantages over other government institutions, in my view, with government support, many countries have used the ideas suggested above to ensure a more robust and successful program of institutional reform in central banks. The IMF engagement is long-term. The IMF has a clear general institutional strategy on reform which they pursue globally. They often play a central role in coordination of support and typically provide experts from other central banks to address capacity gaps rather than relying on technical assistance in the traditional mode. Finally, they have a regular view capacity as a key part of their supervision function. So I think the IMF is to be complemented, and I think some of their ideas should be more actively picked up. 
In, comp, in, in closing, I do have one additional suggestion for analytic work to support institution more broadly, which I don't think is a focus of this year's update. While the program developed above would focus on developing specific institution, there is also a case for regular and serious reviews of the appropriate size of government, including a review of possibilities for privatization, as well as regular examinations of the overall structure and salary structure of government. We know appropriate pay is key to stronger institutional performance, and a serious and regular review of salary options can provide important insights into how to best approach this issue in the general environment of resource constraints. I want to thank you for your attention, and I look forward to an interesting and challenging conference. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Center. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.